It is not beautiful. You read my thoughts, Mr. Holland. It's easy enough to read the thoughts of a newcomer. Everything seems beautiful because you don't understand. Those flying fish, they're not leaping for joy. They're jumping in terror. Bigger fish want to eat them. That luminous water, it takes its gleam from millions of tiny dead bodies. It's the glitter of putrescence. There's no beauty here. It's death and decay. You can't really believe that. Everything good dies here. Even the stars. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 40 this time, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has chosen for us. I selected I Walked with a Zombie from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur, produced by Val Luton, written by Kurt Siodmak and Ardell Ray, and starring Francis D., Tom Conway, James Ellison, and Edith Barrett. It's the story of a young nurse from Canada who is hired to care for the catatonic wife of a plantation owner on a Caribbean island. It's also loosely based on Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. You know what I like about it right off the bat? What's that? Do-to-do-to-do-to-do-to-do-to-do-to-do-to-do, the RKO logo. Definitely. One of my favorites. I was thinking of that a little bit with the uh, TriStar logo that we saw the other day. Why is it so many of these are so exciting to me and always have been? The TriStar with With the the horse horse that jumps into... Of all the ones you could pick, why the TriStar thing? Well, when I was seven, it seemed so exciting. I thought it was going to jump off of the screen. Well, newsflash. (laughs) I walked with a zombie. RKO is, is much better than that one. In my opinion. A couple of things before we get started. One, I think in all of that you forgot to also mention edited by Mark Robeson. Good point. Another of that stable of collaborators that Val Luton put together that would then go on to much bigger things himself. And two, did I ever tell you I had the titular line and I walked with a zombie? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's how we begin. With the proclamation, I walked with a zombie. Yes. And in the spirit of Val Luton and this movie, let's just get right to it because no moment of this film is wasted. Well, when you were working under the sort of restrictions that he was in that contract with Arkeo, when everything had to be 75 minutes long, you couldn't afford to make a false move or waste any time. Now, you mentioned the voiceover, a bit of that. We first hear Betsy our protagonist, talking about this experience that she had on this island, walking with a zombie. We get right into the setup. So she's in Canada. We see a wintry scene through the window. She's cold. This idea of a job in the West Indies gives her this faraway look in her eye. And my favorite part is she whispers to herself, palm trees. I know what that's like. So you feel an immediate affinity for this character because you share a love of palm trees? I do. I would also probably take any job that took me to palm trees. Well, there is a lot to be said for the romantic lure of the balmy West Indies, both positive and negative in this film and in the way that the locale and its inhabitants are used. Do you find yourself relating to her in other ways throughout the film, or is it just right here at the beginning? I think it's just right here. There's probably another element that calls out to me as well. It's the same sort of tone that Rebecca has. And there are a couple of things that occur later on that really made me think of the opening to Rebecca. Oh, we're going to talk a lot about this. Because that was specifically something that I wanted to get into when we get to the end, when we wrap up and we talk about why you chose this one in particular. Okay, So right now, we're back with Betsy on this transport ship out to St. Sebastian, which is the name of the island. My third favorite scene in the film. This scene? Yes. When they're on the boat? Right. The one we reenacted for our opening. Yes. Why is that? Because it sets that tone for the rest of the film. It's not just melancholy. It's fatalistic. The thing that's most striking about all of that is that this film takes everything farther than it would go in a normal film, quote-unquote, from that time frame. 
in this pleasure cruise that she thinks she's on, the destination is one of abject misery, is what he's trying to explain to her on the way. That there is nothing left but decay. And when they arrive, it doesn't feel so much like it's a rich and fertile land as much as it's overripe. As if things are rotting on the vine. And that feeling pervades the whole thing. That atmosphere, I think, is fantastic. And the he that you mentioned is Paul Holland. Mm -hmm. He's the plantation owner that we refer to. It's his wife that she's coming to nurse. And every moment that gives her that faraway look, that romanticism, he's there to undercut it. Now, do you get the feeling he is specifically trying to be cruel, or is he just being pragmatic and trying to prepare her for what is the flatly delivered truth? I think it's a little bit of both. I think he hasn't had a person like that in his life in a long time, so I think his anger definitely comes through. But for the most part, it just seems like honesty. And every time he faces away from her, she wants to draw nearer. He's a cipher. And yet that's somehow attractive. And I think about some of our recent episodes as well, where I just want to say, you you need to run away. He's telling you, get away from me. Believe him. We've arrived in St. Sebastian at this point. And the scene that I love is when she's being taken to Fort Holland in this carriage. And she's having this conversation with the carriage driver. And again, we get to that honesty, which is also, though, quite cruel because the driver tells her clearly, we're here because the Hollands and the people that came before them brought slaves to this island. We are the descendants of these slaves. And she's completely tone deaf in this scene. Oh, it's a beautiful place, though, anyway, isn't it? As they're talking about chains at the bottom of the boat that brought the slaves here. And his answer to her is, if you say, miss, if you say, and I'm thinking about the complexities of the setting that are established right away. That's the real strength of this entire film. And it's complex. Yeah, the word you choose is perfect. Because in 1943, there's a lot about this film that is extremely progressive. And now, looking back at it through the haze of history... There are still certain things that are very much cringeworthy about it. And it does feel like an outlier, though. When you look at it now, there are many elements that come into play later on that we'll be talking about that are jarring to an audience because you haven't seen those ideas about race relations and religion played out in quite that level of honesty. The honesty is the big thing. And who is actually getting to speak it is an even bigger thing right here. Because in 1943, we are just four years removed from Gone with the Wind at the point that they're making this film. And I cannot imagine in any other film, I'm even surprised that it got past people at RKO, that they let a black character voice the fact that slavery is misery and not explicitly state but implicitly state in his response to her, lady, you don't know what you're talking about. The black character telling the white character, you are missing the mark. You are not catching everything that's going on here. And I'm not sure in 1943 which side of that the audience was coming down on. How many of them were very much like her, completely oblivious to what he was saying and echoing her sentiments. Well, look what a wonderful, lovely place you ended up in, regardless of how you were brought here. I just now had a thought, and I don't know the answer to this. Do you think that they were kind of hedging their bets by making her character Canadian? Oh, that's a very good point. I wouldn't doubt that a bit. I feel like this is a thing that we could just talk about for the next hour and a half. How thorny an issue it is to look back at these films that were progressive for their time, but still have so much in them that is exploitive in certain places. The voodoo ceremony, island culture being played up for its exoticism, while simultaneously having the black characters be the ones who are being the most critical. Sir Lancelot and his song, which will come up, the carriage driver. Over and over again, we see these examples of the natives to the island not outright putting the white characters in their place, but it's definitely a constant subtext in everything that's said or sung or 
even just portrayed silently. A lot of people in this film are playing dual roles, whether that role has been thrust upon them or it's intrinsic to their character. So I want to get to that in a little bit. Okay. For now, though, we meet another member of the family. We meet Wesley, who is Paul's half-brother. And drums start beating as Wesley is talking about their family. And I think, again, about that duality. For us, it comes off as, oh, the exotic nature of being on this island. But he tells us, in fact, the drums mean that the sugar syrup is about to be poured at the factory. So it has a much more prosaic meaning. Wesley is definitely laying on the charm in this scene. And a part that I really enjoyed, he mentions Paul as quite the uh, Byronic character. And I enjoy that the movie expects us to get these references. Mm -hmm. Paul arrives back at the fort, and clearly the brothers don't get along, but we don't know why exactly at this point. We mentioned earlier the film wastes no time at all, and it's already nighttime at this point. We've got our trademark blinds making the slats shadows if you're carrying your Val Luton bingo card you can mark that one off right Jacques Turner as well yes Betsy sees a woman in a negligee walking across the courtyard she hears crying as well so she goes out to investigate she follows the sound of this crying to this tower building up the stairwell of stone and lit shadow and reflection. Again, another one of those amazing lighting techniques. And since you mentioned duality, I should mention the wardrobe in this particular case, how these women are direct opposites of one another. You have the catatonic wife whose gown is so white and might as well be a flickering flame as it walks through the darkness. And the nurse sent to care for her who has a similar gown on underneath but that is now covered by a completely black robe. That similarity underneath may be coming into play as she slides into the wife's spot Yes. in the end. We learn that this zombie in white is Jessica. She's Mrs. Holland. She's the catatonic wife. The look of this actress, Christine Gordon, who had a very short career, is so different from everyone else I'm used to seeing at this time period. Do you agree? Yes, I do. Her gauntness feels almost unusual to me. Skeletal. And it works very well. She has a completely otherworldly look to her. This moment we'll see echoed a few more times as well as this zombie is walking towards Betsy relentlessly, endlessly, as Betsy is forced to back up and Jessica keeps coming until a voice tells her to stop. So she is obeying simple commands at this point, but she seems to have no cognition. It's a very eerie introduction that the two characters have to each other, made doubly eerie by the fact that that same voice that's commanding her to stop also issues a directive to the nurse, telling her, there's no crying here. Essentially, you heard nothing. And because he has to keep uh, beating this misery horse into the ground, he points out the slave ship figurehead that they have as a centerpiece in this courtyard of St. Sebastian, who is covered in arrows. They've all been forged in misery. But we've got a movie to finish, so ta-da, it's morning time again. And Alma, the maid, comes in. Alma is played by Teresa Harris, who I'm a big fan of. I've seen her in a lot of films, and I think she never gets the recognition she deserves because she's always a really straightforward, honest presence and feels very today, which mm -hmm. is odd to say in a film from 1943, but she feels very modern. Not so modern that she doesn't engage in a little bit of superstition right off the bat when she wakes Betsy up by touching her on the toe the farthest point from her heart. It's true, and she has a dual role to play as well. She is a black citizen there. She is a maid, essentially, or a housekeeper. And yet, in her role as caretaker to Jessica, she is treating her essentially like a doll, sort of dressing her up and fussing over her. So a caretaker, a mother, and yet still a person who is in servitude to a degree. And I think again about that idea of everyone really running the place, but the white people not actually realizing that they're doing that. Now, Betsy still really hasn't been told anything about what Jessica's situation or state of mind is. At this point, I'm wondering, even if she is told, is she so obtuse based upon her perception of race relations? 
Is she going to have any notion of what might be going on below the surface with any of this stuff? Definitely not at this point. Though, in contrast to that, we meet the doctor here in just a moment, who is the most affable doctor you could ever meet. He's really that aw shucks kind of guy. And so, in his stead, Betsy is required to be the professional. Yes, his professional opinion, his summation as a doctor treating his patient is, she makes a beautiful zombie, doesn't she? At this point, I think we should probably discuss, at least a little bit, the cinematic history of the zombie, of the idea of the zombie. When was the first time you were aware of that idea? The first time I was aware of what zombies were. You know, I think back, this couldn't have been the first, but this sticks in my mind of watching the E! Entertainment channel when it was first starting, and so you would see the same loop of things over and over again because they didn't have any sort of content. And one of those was The Serpent and the Rainbow. Okay. (laughs) So what was that, about 1987 probably? Sometime in there? And that idea of the voodoo-based zombie, the island kind of zombie, as opposed to your Dawn of the Dead. Reanimated flesh eater. Right. Okay. That's, I think that's the first time I had that sort of idea. Do you think there's an entire generation now that has no idea that a zombie is anything but The Walking Dead? I agree with you. They must be thinking of them as sort of rotting hordes. So the seismic shift with that stuff happened with Romero, with Neither the Living Dead? That seems like a reasonable place to start from. I know there are slightly earlier examples Plague of the Zombies, that Hammer film, was from two years before Night of the Living Dead in 1966. But I can't think of other prominent examples of what the majority of people think of now as zombies any time before that. If I think about it before that, I'm thinking of it like it's presented in this film, in this context. Someone who is not in control of themselves. They are the shuffling servant of the voodoo priest or priestess. So in the doctor's opinion, like I was saying, she makes a pretty beautiful example of this first type. She does, and the room is suffused with light. She is very blonde, very pale, lying in bed, beautiful, untouched, and perfect, head to one side, unmoving, staring at nothing. The explanation for this is that she contracted some sort of a tropical fever which affected her brain, and she is now quote-unquote, a sleepwalker who can never be awakened. Medical science, we're told, essentially at this point, has no cure, so the nurse is just there to keep her going. We're going to shift again. Wesley meets up with Betsy in the town, in the town center. We start to hear this fascinating song, and at first it's talking about the endless repeat of this triangle, the triangle we all know of, and all of these couples throughout history. Wesley is clearly a heavy drinker. We see this start to happen. And as this is going on, as they're sitting down and having these drinks, the family Holland then becomes the focus of this song. And our singer is Sir Lancelot. He's a pretty fascinating character, I thought. It's notable that this is the first appearance of calypso music in any film in the United States. And I can't think of any better ambassador for the form that they could have chosen than him. He is a really captivating singer and storyteller. And this song is straight gossip. It is. He is outlining all of the family's dirty laundry, all of the infidelity and the madness and the destruction, and airing it in the town square in front of, unbeknownst to him at the time, Wesley who is one point on this triangle. An interesting note about Sir Lancelot, and I think you may know this, I don't know, because it's later in the run, in the episodes that you don't like as much, but Sir Lancelot figures prominently in an Andy Griffith episode Oh, that tangentially has to do with zombies, in a way, in which Howard travels to the Caribbean. Sprague. Uh, (laughs) I remember, yeah, I remember Howard's shirt. Yeah, but you don't remember Sir Lancelot's appearance? I don't. He's in that episode. Probably was throwing up. (laughs) It just goes to show you in a small town, everybody knows your business. Mm -hmm. This is not news to anyone that he's singing to. They all know the story. Wesley's 
loudly trying to distract Betsy from hearing this, and clearly she's wanting to say, shut up, let me hear what the ending is. When someone finally goes over to Sir Lancelot to say, hey, uh, the Rand brother, he's right over there. And they are, my guess, is the central employer on the island, so you've got to kind of watch yourself a little bit. He decides he's going to go over to apologize, which doesn't go particularly well. As this is winding down, we start to hear in the song of the other person in this triangle, the person who is hateful and cruel and will get her too, referring to Betsy, even as she's trying to defend Paul to his brother. Wesley has passed out at this point, and Sir Lancelot is filling in the ending about how Jessica and Wesley were going to run away, but the fever came and she's now a zombie and that's not going to happen. It's that second moment of Sir Lancelot is coming towards Betsy. She's forced to back up and back up until she has nowhere to go. I love that play happening. And now we meet my favorite character, Mrs. Rand, who is the mother to Wesley, the stepmother to Paul. She comes over and basically takes charge. She obviously loves Wesley and is very concerned about his drinking and specifically asks Betsy to intervene on his behalf with Paul and ask Paul to take the whiskey off of the dinner table, which is a pretty forward request. I would feel very uncomfortable doing something like that within a family dynamic that I had just come to learn about. This is my second favorite scene in the whole movie, this sequence with the song and the mother showing up. Because I realize at this point listening to his song in relation to the things that Wesley is saying and the things that the mother is saying, can you, if you are her, trust anything any of these people are telling you except the Islanders? You or I, we would probably be following the Islanders. I think she's on Team Paul at this point. She seems to just go with anything that he says. You're probably exactly right. I'm probably on board with all the Islanders because... Everyone has an agenda, certainly, even them. I'm just pro their agenda versus everyone else. And that's because the Hollands and the Rands have this thing going where they are clearly still exploiting the Islanders. At least the mother adopts this position of science over superstition, but she's also delivering that with a side dish of Judeo-Christianity. Her acknowledgement of voodoo and her participation in the rituals has nothing to do with respecting the islanders religion or their autonomy it is only about using that as a delivery method to put her message across that leads me to something i want to talk about right now thank you okay which is that we've now met the three central women four if you include alma but i'm specifically thinking of betsy mrs rand and jessica and for me these female characters are by far more interesting than the male characters, which is, again, kind of a change. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of things about that that stand out to me. As love interests, everyone is completely bland. There's, Definitely. For the central problem to be caused by inflamed passions, I'm not seeing a whole lot of that. And ultimately, even though that's the case, they are very much more interesting characters and the plot definitely centers around all of their activity. Are they still disproportionately punished versus the male characters? Which is something that we can wrap up once we get to the end. Okay, I'll have to mull that over okay. a little bit as we go. In the meantime, here's what I was thinking about. Jessica, though I think you're right, we're not seeing a lot of hot blood flowing, but... Jessica is so vividly described to us by the people whose passions she inflamed, at least in their minds, that we have to believe that she could have been at the center of this or any other triangle. And for me, that works. Hearing what they're telling us, I believe it. In Betsy, we have a professional woman. Even though she is starry-eyed, she does seem to know her own mind, I would say. And she clearly sets out to do what's right. She does, though, indulge in that annoying characteristic of falling in love with a mystery who tells her, don't love me. And then you pit her against the doctor, and she seems to be the more clever of the two. Oh, far and away. Is that, though, primarily because he has been on the island for so long that he now operates by those rhythms 
where she has just arrived and has not yet become acclimated to that. Quite possibly. I'm sure he doesn't have a lot of demanding cases, you know, high-profile pathologies that he's got to track down. But even so, she does stand out. She's always wearing her uniform. She's always on the ball. And then finally, I mentioned Mrs. Rand as my favorite character, portrayed by Edith Barrett in this, whom I really, really like. She is required to play, I think, the most complex duality in the film. She is required to be the most paternalistic and the most maternalistic character. Mm. You mentioned before, we see later she indulges in voodoo in order to do what she sees as right. Like a missionary might. Yes, even though the villagers couldn't possibly understand, so she says, mm -hmm. and even uses it herself in a moment of weakness. She has made her home at this point apart from her family. And for me, she's almost curiously sexless, even though we learn first she was married to a missionary, which feels kind of sexless to me, and then had a second marriage with Mr. Holland, who was Paul's father. So she's clearly been in a marital bed, but it doesn't come, again, passionless, it doesn't come off that way. I don't know how you could say the missionary thing is particularly sexless. They invented a position. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sorry. And then I'm going to compare her as well with the doctor. I would feel more comfort in her hands than his. Oh, I think certainly. she seems to be on the ball again. And I mentioned the maternalism and the paternalism. She's required to represent both the good and bad in both of those. She maintains this tradition of the slave-holding generational father who died, really, by keeping all of this going, maintains the tradition of the patriarchy and the rigidity of the church in this missionary husband who died. In the face of this local culture that she is a part of now, but is apart from, she's also asked to be this nurturing mother who has to let her children grow while she has lost what's the most womanly part of herself. And she's asked to be essentially the mother to the entire community at the same time. For the moment, let's get back to the action. Okay. Betsy follows through on Mrs. Rand's request on Wesley's behalf to ask Paul to take the whiskey away. He flat out refuses, and then he's just gone. Later on, though, he's actually complied with her request without saying anything about it. We hear the call of the conch shell, and that means that the home fort, which is the voodoo temple, that they're starting up their nightly rituals. In the meantime, we transition to a completely different scene. Betsy is listening to Paul play the piano in another room. This is when she is exposing her vulnerability and is talking about wanting to help Paul and that she loves Fort Holland, which where does that come from? I don't know. Even though I said she's on the ball, it's it's a little soon for that kind of devotion. But he talks about, oh, you have helped me, but I'm sorry I've ever brought you here. Betsy is convinced that Paul didn't drive his wife mad, though we'll find out some more about that later. And that's when the drums start up again in earnest, and he dismisses her. I think this marks a turning point for Betsy. She is fully in this devotional mode where she has decided that she's got to help Jessica in order to restore her to Paul. Mm -hmm. She and the doctor are discussing insulin shock treatment as a way to possibly get Jessica out of her zombie-like state. Now, I did look this up a bit, so will you indulge me on a little sure. medical history for a moment? Insulin shock therapy, or insulin coma therapy, was indeed a psychiatric treatment. Was it viewed as radical at the time? It was, though it was used extensively in the 1940s and 50s. Okay. So this was an established thing. What they did was repeatedly inject patients with large doses of insulin in order to produce daily comas over several weeks. Hmm. However, it was mainly used for schizophrenic patients. I couldn't find anything that would have suggested it's for people already in some sort of a, even though it's a walking coma, mm -hmm. in that kind of Not for treating catatonic states. Right. Well, it's clearly a last-ditch thing because every time they talk about her, they talk as if she's dead already. Yes, because she's completely non-responsive. She doesn't speak. 
She doesn't respond to stimuli except for simple verbal commands. And I read something interesting, again, about the shock treatment. People have tried to explain why it was actually accepted at such an uncritical level. And one person was writing about how it wasn't based on the scientific evidence or knowledge of the treatment. It was more about the impression that it made on the people who saw it take place, hmm. which is something that Betsy expresses. She talks about how she's seen it happen and she's seen cures, which is debatable. But it produced very dramatic results. However, it completely fell out of favor and is not used anymore. But I think it would appeal to Betsy and the doctor because it produces such a dramatic result. It makes you feel like you're actually doing something rather than just standing by. We have another of these interesting moments in how the races are treated when the next morning, Betsy meets the new baby of one of the local families. And she is, to me, allowed to say this black baby is beautiful. Can you think of any other film at that time period where you would have heard something like that? No, nothing comes to mind. And this is happening, though, even as they're all deferring to her and almost curtsying to her. So again, these odd plays on who is in charge, who really has all of the knowledge. Well, we are hurtling toward the centerpiece of that sort of conflict. Yes. This is where the seed is planted that there are other doctors, better doctors, at the home fort, who can cure anything, and that they can definitely cure Mrs. Holland. We're back at the dispensary at this point where Mrs. Rand works, and this is a moment that you had alluded to where she is treating a very young boy. He has both voodoo and Christian icons on his body, and she's talking about how are you ever going to get to heaven with one foot in the home fort and one foot in heaven? Why would he even need to worry about something like that? Again, it's this sort of patriarchy cycle over and over again. Betsy is talking about this idea of taking Jessica to the home fort, and Mrs. Rand is flatly against it. Well, whether she's against it or not, that's what's going to happen. And there is so much that is great and terrible about the film and all of these ideas that it carries in this entire sequence. My favorite scene to look at, it's so visually stunning, these long tracking shots as Betsy leads Jessica through the cane field to go to the voodoo ritual. And so you have all of these ideas, these representations in the pro column and the con column. You have a clash of cultures, obviously. We know by implication which one we're supposed to favor. Are we? I definitely think so. Because the ultimate message of the film is not that we should leave advanced Western medicine and science behind and embrace voodoo. And it is very much in the Judeo-Christian tradition of adulterers are punished, women are punished. There's a whole lot to it. I guess that's true. Maybe it's that Appalachian part that comes out that makes me think anyone that I watched it with would probably say, well, of course you're going to go to the home fort. The implication is the people from the island are primitive, and there's just no getting around that part of it. That science is superior, which, in my estimation, that applies to whichever religion or superstition you're pitting it against, not just voodoo. That applies equally to her Christianity as well, as far as I'm concerned. That's not how she saw it, and that's probably not how it was intended for the audience to take it. Other conflicts that you have built into this thing, you have what seems to be a fairly well-researched and accurately represented voodoo ritual. When you look at any of the other ethnographic films that were made on either side of that, or even up to more recent times, it's a fairly accurate depiction of those things as far as Hollywood goes. And they don't seem to be focusing on shock or titillation or exploitive aspects in presenting these people's religion. But it's definitely there still to play on the old, ooh, isn't this exotic, this thing that is so foreign to us. Agreed. It's definitely toned down if you look at something like King Kong. <laughs> you know, you think? that's that's the <laughs> crazy level yeah. of we've never actually seen any of this take place and this is what we imagine it would look like. Right. And this is the toned down version of that. This seems almost scholarly compared to your it King does. Kong reference. <laughs> 
especially when it's shot so beautifully mm-hmm. and put together so well. It seems like they took care with it, the way it's assembled. Yes. So you've got this extended scene of her leading her through the cane field and coming upon the Guardian. Carrefour. Right, played by Darby Jones, in some of the most iconic horror makeup that you'll ever see. He looks like he's sightless. He looks like a giant. I also skipped over the one actual truly qualifying horror shot in the whole thing prior to their meeting him. As they're walking through the field and they're coming across the remnants of some of these rituals, they come across skulls and bones laid out in formations on the ground, and they come across a really striking image of an animal hanged from a tree that is the one, I think, genuine shock, the scare moment in it. But because of where it takes place in their isolation and the actual separation from the ceremony itself, it does not feel in this instance like that is meant to be a commentary on island culture. To me, that moment played more like any other Luton signature jump scare, like the bus in Cat People, for instance. It's what elevates it to excellent, in my opinion. It's so visually striking. So they're making their way through the field, and they've seen all of these disturbing images, and she is determined, you can tell, Betsy is not to be frightened. And at that very moment is when her flashlight falls on his eyes. He lets them pass, and he goes back into the cane. Now we're getting to the gathering. Now we're beginning to see what's actually happening. And we see specifically Jessica's expression still never changes, even as the drumming and the singing gets louder. There's a saber dancer and what I would think of as a supplicant, almost. Mm -hmm. We see this process that's going on, which is that a person goes up to the door, speaks through the door, listens as told something, and leaves. And then the next person comes and the next person comes. Betsy and Jessica get into line. At this moment, Betsy is pulled in, but Jessica is left outside. Wrong move on her part. (laughs) The person who pulls her in is Mrs. Rand. She's been this wise home fort spirit guru the whole time. She says that she learned to use the gods to treat people because they wouldn't listen otherwise. Now, outside in the meantime, the saber man approaches Jessica, gets her to raise her arm, and plunges the sword in. There's no blood, no reaction. Betsy takes Jessica back through the cane, back safely to the tower, and Paul is waiting. She says again that this is because she wanted to help him. He's very angry and confused, I think, as to why she wants to give him his wife back. He definitely does not want Jessica restored, he specifically says. Yes. A little bit about Tom Conway here, who plays Paul Holland. His stock in trade for me is never looking someone in the eye that he's (laughs) talking with. He does it a couple of times here, but it is so distracting to me. The favorite example of that would be in The She-Creature with Chester Morris. (laughs) Can you blame him for not wanting to look Chester Morris in the eye with those eyebrows going crazy like they are all the time? True, true. I couldn't concentrate if I was looking at his face. Well, you can't look at Frances D either, apparently. And she was gorgeous. But anyway, so we now know Paul does not want Jessica back, doesn't love her anymore. This is an incredibly confusing, conflicting situation that she is now in. Almost as confusing as everyone out there right now who is trying to figure out who Chester Morris is. (laughs) I will mention him later. How about that? And then you can go down a little IMDb hole. If you don't know who Chester Morris is, I've got nothing to say to you. (laughs) If you want to see the eyebrows on parade with Chester Morris, find a film called The Bat Whispers. It is off the charts. Yes. And a really revolutionary film in its own way. A film I like an awful lot, but the eyebrow action in that is top-notch. Yeah. Anyway, back to the movie. Clearly the villagers have been planning something because they have put a dress on a little blonde doll, and they want to bring her back to the home fort to keep testing her, to keep working on her. Because of this, and because of this action that Betsy has taken and riled up this whole community, the police are there, to figure out what's going on. Paul has essentially decided to get her off of the island, but to commit her. 
to a facility that can adequately take care of her, Wesley wants her to stay. So the choices are more voodoo or the loony bin, basically. Yes. Now, Carrefour has been sent on this mission to collect Jessica. He's got the doll. He's been given the motion that he's supposed to go get her. And we hear his scraping footsteps and then see this giant shadow, which is a great shot. To me, this is clearly supposed to be playing on racial anxieties. Yes. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. So at least in part. So again, for every step forward we take, we take one back, it yes. feels like. You got the hulking, silent, giant. Coming to steal the white woman, yes. essentially. We've got that third instance of the thing that I love where Carrefour is coming relentlessly on without stopping while everyone is trying to back up. And there's that great close-up of his face. Mrs. Rand is the only person who can stop him, again, with those simple commands that we're told that zombies can only respond to. So is this a metaphor for how much control and influence she has over the island as a whole, over her family? Is there more to that? I think of it more, again, that paternalistic, maternalistic feeling that she has for the villager. She's the person. She's the voice of reason. She knows what's best for them. And they can only respond to simple commands. Okay. Yeah. I could be wrong, but... No, I don't think you are. I think, like we keep mentioning, for every tick in the positive column, we've got one in the negative. This is where our conflict comes to a head. Because the commissioner has decided on an investigation into what has actually happened to Jessica. Now, at this moment, Wesley is still insisting that it's Paul's fault that he caused this fever somehow. Mrs. Rand insists that she is going to go to the commissioner and explain everything. That Jessica is dead, she's living and dead, but she's not insane, and says, I did it. Mrs. Rand reveals that that night that Jessica wanted to go away with Wesley, Mrs. Rand knew that Jessica was going to tear her family apart, and so she used her voice to speak to the gods and say, this woman is evil, please make her into a zombie. Jessica already was raging with fever at this point. And so after this admission, everyone's trying to convince her, no, you were essentially tricked by your own imagination, which to me then undercuts everything that she stood for up until now. If she was so deluded, she was the person that we were following, Mm -hmm. that we put our hopes and trust into to take care of us. And she's the person who made the silliest decision of all, the most superstitious, completely gave way, and yet it still didn't really come off. And this seems to totally deplete her. Meanwhile, the saber dancer is doing that super nifty trick of pulling the doll towards him, and that's getting Jessica to walk at the same time. They stop her from leaving through the gate, though, at this moment. And we have a really interesting final twist. Wesley is talking to Betsy about essentially setting Jessica free, which means killing her. Mm -hmm. And he gives her a couple of options. It would be the right thing to do. She wanted to be free. And also, hey, you love Paul. This can remove that obstacle in your path. She won't because she's taken an oath. Tellingly, Jessica does not get to make any of these decisions for herself. She does not. She comes to the gate again, Jessica. This time, Wesley sees her and opens the gate for her. He takes one of the arrows out of St. Sebastian, out of tea misery, as we call him. We've got two shots, one of the saber man putting a long pin into this doll as we see Wesley stand up from Jessica's body in the sand, and we know that he's killed her. Carrefour is coming across the sand and again sightlessly lifting his arms towards Jessica as Wesley is taking her into his arms and walking out into the ocean. And now they're covered. And I think again about the juxtaposition of black and white. We have Carrefour and then we have that white foam Mm. that are so distinct. And then Jessica's wet body. Very Ophelia-like at the end, it felt like. And I think about what you mentioned earlier. We've got this prayer that someone is speaking, and it's about how she was a wicked woman, dead in the selfishness of her spirit. Her steps led him to evil, meaning Wesley, 
now give peace and happiness to the living. So the lady got punished. So happy ending? I, <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling on my collar a little bit with this one. But in a Val Luton film, the end. Mm-hmm. 69 minutes, we're done. I know I'm criticizing the film an awful lot for some of these missteps, and it's hard to hold it to a modern standard. Obviously, it's 70 plus years old at this point, and we cannot fault them necessarily for not anticipating what might be socially acceptable literally generations from then. So I should mention, I really love the movie. It's one of my all-time favorites. Even though you chose it, I could have just as easily chosen it myself. I'm a huge fan of all things Val Luton, and this one ranks pretty highly up there. That being said, we'll look at the final scorecard, I guess. And we see that, if nothing else, the film is extremely interesting in the conversations that it can generate. I think, for me, though, now as I'm saying it, maybe I should backtrack, but I think it's enough that they raise these questions and allow people to have these conflicts without necessarily coming down on one side or the other every single time the same way, Mm -hmm. that it allows for some of that ambiguity and for it to continue to be relevant and interesting. Do you agree with me on that, or do you think I've gone too far and given it too much of a pass? No, I think that's valid. And I do think it actually maybe shows a little more consistency than might have been communicated by the way you put it, because the characters that actually get to say those things and the things they say, it generates a pretty uniform message for the most part because you have all of the socioeconomic implications being dealt with directly addressed by the people that it affects, not by the people in charge, but the people who are suffering from it. So much so that they specifically mention at one point that death is favorable. Their religion celebrates death because that is a release from misery because we're forged in misery so in that way it's well ahead of its time in putting those sentiments in the mouths of the characters who are feeling those feelings rather than having a white character act as a surrogate and comment on those things for you or translate them for the audience those characters are getting to speak their own feelings about their own situation over and over again so i think it's pretty consistent in that regard Where it's less consistent might be in when it chooses to exaggerate or not exaggerate native characteristics. Is the religion, the way it's treated, is it an accurate depiction or is it a little bit more tourism sometimes? Is it for shock and titillation occasionally or is it for strictly education? The other thing that seems a little regressive is obviously who ends up being ultimately punished and how. And that manifests itself in a couple of different ways, both of them a little bit troubling. You have the white woman who at the end dies slash is sacrificed. And making her the focal point, does that undercut generation after generation of native suffering? And then the other things that get punished, female sexuality and non-Christian religion. How did those things feel to you? Well, one thing you mentioned really jumped out at me. Jane Eyre is my second favorite book Mm. of all time. Love it. Read it many times. Have watched many adaptations of the story. And so I thought it was really fun to see some of those inspirations come through. And then some specific choices that they made to make it a little bit different. And one thing that comes to mind for me is the character of the wife again. You mentioned that the white woman is punished. And I'm thinking back to... The original Mrs. Rochester, who was also punished, the insinuation in that story was that she was, well, not insinuation, he met her on an island, and she was part of a family who lived there. I don't get the sense that she was part of a white family, but probably more like mixed blood. Hmm. And so I think that that's a really interesting change to make, that they took a mixed blood woman to be punished and turned her into a white woman. Back to your question, though, and how it relates to Jane Eyre. I love those elements that they kept, meaning these big secrets, these big mysteries, yet some of them are revealed to us right away, so we're still left wondering, oh, what is going to be this other twist that happens? I really like the 
utilization of the other part of the triangle, meaning the brother who is destroying himself. I think that's an interesting character. And then I mentioned again my favorite being the stepmother. I think that she's a great addition to the story. Betsy is no Jane Eyre. She doesn't quite meet that level. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. But I like seeing this young woman on an adventure that she's not yet equipped to understand. Well, I was being facetious when I say happy ending when I'm asking you when it's all wrapped up. But seriously, who wins? I'm going to say again, I feel like I've said it multiple times over the course of this podcast. Don't fall in love with the mystery who cannot return your love. That's a losing game. So if Betsy has gotten her rival out of the way, she's still going to want to be with Paul Holland? He's going to miraculously be a loving, cherishing husband? No, it's still going to be exactly what he outlined for her on the boat. It's decay and misery, and I do not see him making a 180-degree turn. He's playing ragtime on the piano when she gets back? <laughs> not this time. So now, in the history of the podcast, you've done this... You've done Rebecca. You've done The Uninvited. Mm -hmm. Are you sensing patterns I'm here? seeing a little bit of a pattern with these craggy shorelines and Can all, we go this, live there? <laughs> all this gothic misery. What is it about this type of film, this atmosphere, this mood, this story that speaks to you over and over again? Because it seems like variations on these themes have cropped up a few times now for you. As you're asking it, the first thing that pops into my head is wisteria. Am I just a product of where I'm from and endless years of columns and weeping willows and wisteria everywhere and darkness and southern gothic stories and Appalachian folk remedies? Does it just somehow appeal to me? But you're not choosing Faulkner adaptations over and over again. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> We're not watching a rose for Emily. Yes, but or wise blood. These are well. Wise blood was on my ants in the pants. That's of true. The year before. That's true. Thank you very much. I don't have a distinct answer for you. We do not have my ex-husband in a tower in our house. <laughs> I don't have any big secrets or big mysteries. I don't have any big skeletons that you're unaware of at this point. But you clearly would like to have yes. one. Yes. <laughs> I would clearly be loving to go around solving mysteries like this while wearing negligees, maybe. Or a cool cape. I'm into it. Now, if we had a tower, mm -hmm. what would you be hiding in it? Maybe the cast of Thundercrack. <laughs> an insane scabby gorilla. I would let the house out as an Airbnb for them, but I don't think I'd put them in the tower and isolate them. I want in on that party. Okay. If I'm going to put something in the tower, it's probably going to be a lifetime supply of Milky Way, so you keep your filthy mitts off them. Oh, fine. Yeah, I don't really like candy bars. I You're never... said no one ever. <laughs> Did we cover why you chose this? We haven't totally, okay. actually. Sorry, I don't mean to just run on and on. That's but okay. I do have some other notes that I wanted to make sure I mentioned. The first of which is that I actually saw this for the first time on the big screen. Oh, cool. And I didn't know what I was getting into. It was the double feature. I think it was with King Kong now that I mentioned that earlier this was my introduction to it and can you think of a better way to watch that for the first time and it's so compact that i felt like whoa i just sat down and now it's over and what's happened and it's an, an especially great way to see any jacques tourneur as well i wanted to talk a second you've mentioned a couple of elements of the val luton jacques tourneur partnership mm -hmm. and how that came to be which i think is really interesting and it shows you what can come out of having constraints yeah. given to you. Which was, RKO said that these films that they were allowing Val Luton to produce, they all had to come in under $150,000. They all had to run under 75 minutes. So they were clearly being made as those kind of B programmers. The second part of a double bill, or the first part of a double bill. Right. In addition to that, it was also RKO's reaction to Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and moving the other direction. I think the quote you see most often 
when leadership changed at RKO is that they went in the direction of showmanship, not genius. Yes. All sarcasm intended. Right. But they got genius with Val Luton, which they were not counting on. Definitely. The first one was Cat People, which is one of our favorites as well, and I'm sure many of our listeners too. And that was considered at the time to be a B film, but it did so well and was so acclaimed that it was definitely an A-list picture at that point. So at that point, Val Luton could make these other films with less interference and really set about fulfilling his vision, and it is his vision. We do say make these films. I guess we should point out, we talk about him in terms that we usually reserve for directors. Definitely. But he was a producer. Maybe the first, maybe the only auteur producer. Can you think of another one? I'm sure I could, but not right this second. Robert Evans, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I tried to think of another auteur producer. (laughs) I didn't think there were any. But man, I was worse than right. I was wrong. <laughs> Sorry. That's my Robert Evans impression. It was very good. It was very good. But he did have this very striking vision and in return worked with people who he knew and trusted to fulfill this vision. Mm-hmm. And in turn gave them the opportunity to take on other projects of their own and become the people that we know today like Mark Robeson, you mentioned, Robert Wise, Jacques Turner. Mm-hmm. Amazing careers. I do want to read something that the New York Times wrote in their review of the film. Is this that goddamn Bosley Crowther again? I, it didn't specifically say so. It's so got it may, to be. Somebody. They called it a dull, disgusting exaggeration of an unhealthy, abnormal concept of life. That's Bosley Crowther all the it's way. It's got to be. I guarantee it. Slightly less alliteration than mm. I would have expected from him, but... He didn't refer to anyone as a peck sniff. No. An egregious cartuffle. <laughs> Lick spittle. And then it appeals to me in the way that all of these films do, which are those connections that I find so endlessly delightful. For example, Francis D. was married to Joel McRae, who is your single favorite actor of all time, you correct? You saying that. Yeah, you've said it on many occasions. You say that all the time. It's, it's on a t-shirt it's somewhere. It's not true. Nice enough guy, I'm sure. You know, for me, actually, Joel McRae succeeds a little bit more in that aw shucks category than Gary Cooper. Sorry, I just had to get that in from Meet John Doe. Anyway, Tom Conway, we mentioned before, he is the brother of George Sanders, one of my all-time favorites. He definitely comes across as the junior varsity George Sanders. Maybe the elementary version. The George Sanders is by far the more charismatic of the two, or of really any other person that he might be standing next to at any given point. I mentioned She Creature, other MST3K titles, how you see all of these people kind of coming back later in life. Though I did learn, sadly, now that I've slagged him off about the no eye contact, evidently his eyesight started failing so badly that... That's probably why he actually couldn't look a lot of people in the eye effectively. You are a real jerk. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. We've got James Ellison, who plays Wesley in this. He's in one of your favorites, mm-hmm. and now mine, because you introduced me to it, The Undying Monster. Mm-hmm. I was reading a little bit more about him, and I guess it was kind of universally accepted that he didn't have the greatest dramatic gifts No, to he give. was mostly in cowboy movies early yeah. on. He did a ton of early westerns. I think in this, he plays to his strengths. I think he's very effective. Mm-hmm. Edith Barrett, I've talked about. She plays Mrs. Rand. She was married to Vincent Price. I, I didn't yeah. know that before. I, I didn't either. She was also part of the Mercury Theater Group, too. Mm-hmm. So Wells had someone on the inside, (laughs) either way. So we've got all of those folks. Teresa Harris, I mentioned very briefly. You'll see her in lots of great films. She's always great. We talked about how no time is wasted, not a second is wasted in this film. And then there are just those fun touches. We've got the legal language at the beginning that mentions no resemblance to persons living or dead. And it also includes or possessed. (laughs) So it's just fun. It's great. It might be regressive. It might be progressive in certain points. It looks wonderful. There's a lot to sink your teeth into. I've probably seen it 25 times at this point. I've watched it so many times. Just one you put on and have on all the time. All the time. It's my old dark house for you. I think so. Yeah. 
So does that did I adequately answer why I chose it? I think, I think so. I got to everything. I think the only thing that we didn't specifically go into is how, in addition to all the other restrictions, Luton was assigned specific titles. So he was given something as potentially schlocky as I walked with a zombie and turns it into a really moody mini masterpiece when I do not think that is at all what RKO was expecting. And the story goes that he didn't like the original story. This was a story I walked with a zombie. And so he tasked the writers to use Jane Eyre as a story structure to give it more narrative drive and make it more interesting. And I think it really works. But yeah, I think that covers it otherwise. Is there anything else you'd recommend? How's that for a segue? Very good. Okay. I agonized over this one this week. You don't say. I have four others that I have question marks with of what I was thinking about. (laughs) We watched Caught from 1949 the Mm -hmm. other day. Directed by Max Ophels with Barbara Belgetti's Robert Ryan and James Mason. Mm -hmm. It's about a naive young woman who marries an extremely wealthy man to realize later on he's truly insane. I'm recommending this. One, because there's a triangle in it. That was the most obvious through point. But really because I'm still flummoxed by it. I'm still thinking, I've still thought about it every single day since we watched it. One particular still resonates. Everything. Okay. Because I know what I'm still thinking about. What are you still thinking about? I'm still thinking about, especially in terms of how it relates to I Walked with a Zombie, that even though everyone seems to have gotten what they wanted, I feel terrible sort of at the end of it for all of them. Yes. She gets what she thinks she wants because she's a creep. Barbara Belgetti's America's Sweetheart, yes. too, doing yes. that, pulling off, doing an incredible job. She's amazing in this. Mm. Amazing in this. Talk about ambiguity and existential realism. and yeah. Uh, yeah. Robert Ryan, not enough could ever be said about his performance in it. You know I'm a huge James Mason fan. Mm. I'm still thinking about how blithely people talk about dead babies towards the end of this. Uh-huh. And removing obstacles, and that suddenly makes everything better. It's, yeah, it's complex. And the character Robert Ryan plays is based on Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. So another RKO oh, interaction. Yeah, true. How about you? What do you recommend? My recommendation this time around is for Angel Heart from 1987, directed by Alan Parker, starring Mickey Rourke, Lisa Bonet, and Robert De Niro. And it is about a private investigator who is hired to track down a missing crooner. And that investigation takes an unexpected diabolical turn. My connection in this is the interloper interfering in voodoo culture, along with a number of the same troubling aspects of cultures clashing, exploitation, and the role that religion plays in all these people's lives. It's the movie I went to see the absolute most in the theater in 1987. 1987 was one of the most pivotal years for me in terms of my cinematic appreciation, I feel like. It was when I first really began to go to the movies I wanted to go see. I was 17. As a kid growing up, all the trailers I would see would have that bar that came across at the beginning for R-rated films. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian, so 17, 17, 17. Now, for me, I know for some people it's 16 and I get to drive, it's whatever their milestones are. For me, 17, I get to go to the movies, any movie I want, by myself, anytime. And so 1987 was that year for me, was a big deal. And out of all the things I saw in the theater, I probably went to see Angel Heart four times, five times in consecutive weekends, maybe a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday, and then the next weekend again. I loved it so much and made everyone that I knew go to see it with me, some of whom are still probably angry with me about that. Shouldn't they be thanking you? Some of them were extremely conservative. Mm. Well, not conservative, but have deeply held religious beliefs. There's a conflict in terms of free will in it that was disturbing to some of them. We just showed it for a screening series that we did having to do with the devil not too long ago. It's super entertaining. Um. You did say diabolical earlier. I did. And if you don't pick up on the name right away, that's your problem, not mine. 
Yeah, I love it to death. Flaws and all, it's one of my all-time favorites. Probably one of my Desert Island films. I would say definitely top 100, if not top 10. That top 100 kind of changes all the time. But it's one of those that I know every single line of dialogue. I could reenact the whole thing for you right now. I won't, but I could. Yeah, I love that one, and that is what I recommend this time. That's two stellar recommendations again, Caught and Angel Heart. And that brings us to the end of episode 40. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. If you just search for our name at either one of those venues, we're easy to find. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who shared links to the show or gave us feedback since our last episode. Neil Barnholden, the fine gentleman over at the podcast FUDs on Film. RJ Tugas, Jeff Duncanson, Tim Lego, Grindhouse Dave, Mike Scharf, and Travis Trudell. Thanks a lot for sharing the show. We don't advertise, so word of mouth is the only way more people find out about us. And we appreciate it anytime you guys go to the trouble. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, or you can find us on any podcatcher that you typically use. If you would like to leave us a rating or review at any of those places, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 